All right, well, we are in First Peter, and uh, what I'm going to do today is do what I did about three years ago when we uh, stepped into the book of Romans. I'm just going to give you an introduction before we start looking verse by verse. We'll begin that next week. So we're going to read a lot of scripture passages just as we're considering the book, but I'm going to try to limit my comments on those passages because we'll come back to them and uh, thoroughly examine them and and draw beautiful lessons from them in the uh, coming months. But today, just a general overview to, to give you some good information that I think you'll need. First, Peter, and you can open there if you'd like, because we will be looking at the passages there. Uh, it's First Peter. If you're using one of those blue Bibles located underneath the seats around you, it's page 1014. 1014 will bring you to First Peter. Uh, the book was, or the letter was written, we refer to them as books, but this is an epistle, a letter, it was written somewhere between A.D. 62 and 64, and you may already know this, but it is named or titled after the author of the letter. You know, uh, typically, Paul's letters are typically titled after the church to whom he is writing. Uh, in this case, this is just named after the author. And it's called 1 Peter to distinguish it from 2 Peter or the other letter in the New Testament that uh, Peter authored a short time after 1 Peter. Both 1 and 2 Peter are believed to have been written near the close of uh, Peter's life because according to church tradition, Peter around uh, 67 maybe, but no later than 68 AD, was crucified in Rome for his faith under the rule of Emperor Nero, pretty bad guy. And Nero, I won't go into the story right now, but he had instigated and led a brutal persecution in Rome against Christians beginning in the fall of A.D. 64. And we know Nero died in 68, so uh, Peter had to have died prior to then because he died under, again, according to church tradition, under the reign in this persecution of Emperor Nero. As was common in first century correspondence, letters generally begin by introducing the author and then those to whom the letter was written. And so we see that in this letter as well. Look at your Bibles, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1. Peter right, identifies himself, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now he identifies the readers. To those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Another translation of that uh, passage just puts it like this. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, strangers in the world, scattered throughout and then the various uh, provinces. So we'll take a closer look at this passage next, next week, but this letter was a circular letter, a circular letter. What does that mean? It means that Peter intended it to be passed around or circulated to a number of people in different places. The people in this case are Christians who were congregating together in various Roman provinces in Asia Minor, in Asia Minor, or in an area that we would now identify as modern-day Turkey, modern-day Turkey. It has been suggested, it's probably uh, reasonable to conclude this, that the order in which the provinces are listed there in verse 1 
uh, actually was uh, served as a basically a delivery for the courier. He would deliver the letter in that order as he traveled roughly in a circle, beginning with Pontus and ending in Bithynia. And so maybe that's why they're in that particular order. But these are multiple churches, the people of God in this particular area, Asia Minor, and these are Roman provinces to whom he is writing the letter. Now, concerning the readers of the letter, and this is just something I want to point out because if you're studying the book or you may have come across this yourself, there's been some discussion uh, throughout history and a debate about this, but some Bible scholars, especially uh, those prior in history, but there's still a few today, have for various reasons concluded that the readers of 1 Peter, all those Christians in Asia Minor, were exclusively Jewish Christians. Jewish Christians. And uh, what reasons do they come for what reasons do they come to that conclusion? Well, let me let me point a few things out. First, it's the description of them in verse one. And we just read it. And again, in the ESV, it says that these readers are exiles of the dispersion. The dispersion. And I know other translations, and again, we'll talk about this next week, may not have that specific uh, language, but dispersion is the actual word there. Uh, with the definite article, the, the, dispersion, uh, which is actually not there in the original language in 1 Peter, but with the definite article, uh, that phrase, the dispersion, was a standard Jewish way to, re- or a standard way to refer to Jews living among the Gentiles outside of their Palestinian homeland, okay? So that's one reason, when, since it's right there in the beginning of the letter. However, I'll just say now, the definite article is not there. Uh, you can see this with the definite article, that particular phrase in John 7.35, so you could jot that down if you'd like, where it is being used in that way to describe Jews that were outside of their Palestinian, 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 wow, homeland, living among the Gentiles, okay, in the Gentile area. Uh, Beyond that, the reason some people think that this letter is written, or have thought that this letter is written specifically to Jewish Christians, is Peter's use of uh, Old Testament uh, Jewish terminology to describe his readers in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. And again, we're not going to look at it now. Beyond that, there's also an emphasis on the Old Testament throughout the letter. Peter quotes from the Old Testament. He alludes to the Old Testament. He refers to characters from the Old Testament, for instance, like Sarah, Abraham, Noah, okay? And again, that tends to maybe lean someone to think that who is most familiar with the Old Testament? The Jews, the Jews. It was their book. It was not the book of the Gentiles. So uh, for all those reasons, and beside that, Peter was also known as the apostle to the the Jews or the circumcised. Okay, and you'll see that in Galatians, um, many, several places, but Galatians chapter 2, verses 7 through 8, there you see a distinction. Peter is referred to as the apostle to the circumcised, the Jews, and Paul, the apostle to the uncircumcised, or the Gentiles. Uh, however, um, that in and of itself is really not proof, per se, that this is written specifically to Jewish Christians. We know Paul ministered to the Jews as well as to the Gentiles, but 
his primary focus was on the Gentile people. So, but today, the majority of scholars, I'm sure you can find one that doesn't, but the majority of Bible scholars agree, as I do as well, that the readers were Gentiles. Gentiles, or maybe more accurate it would be to say uh, mostly Gentiles. Mostly Gentiles, okay? And the reason that I draw that conclusion and others do is that there, some of the things that Peter says in 1 Peter cannot cannot really be reconciled with the idea that his readers were exclusively Jewish. So, for instance, 1 Peter 1.18, I'll read them in a second, and chapter 2, verse 10, one scholar looking at those passages says these are scarcely things Peter would say of Christian Jews. It would be hard for him to actually say this if he was writing exclusively to Jewish Christians. So, for instance, in 1.18 it says, knowing to his readers that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers. That fits a Gentile Christian reader, for sure. The only way that would fit a Jewish Gentile reader is you'd have to go back prior to Abraham or something of that nature, but typically forefathers, if it was speaking to a Jewish audience, would be Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and their ways were not futile. Their ways were unto the Lord, the God of Israel. First uh, Peter 2.10 says, Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. What does that sound like to you? Gentiles. Gentiles. And one of the more conclusive verses that the readers were not exclusively Jewish, but rather mostly Gentile, is 1 Peter 4.3. There it says this, For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. Another translation of the Bible puts that verse this way, for you have spent, he's talking to the readers, you spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. Okay? So the readers' lives, according to that passage, were formerly marked by sin that was entirely uncharacteristic of Jews who were living under God's law. It doesn't mean that Jews were sinless or perfect, but to describe them as having been caught up in that kind of stuff in the past, it, it's hard to make that fit with the Jewish people at all. Peter then adds this in verse 4, with respect to this, this what I just read in verse 3, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. In other words, those folks that you used to be with, they're surprised that you're no longer wanting to do what they did. Now, why would they be surprised? Because they used to do that, but they came to Christ, and they were changed, and they put away, they began to put away that sinful life and that idolatry and all that went with that kind of lifestyle. That's why they were surprised. One writer says this, it would not have been surprising to unbelievers, if the Christians had previously been Jews following the strict moral standards of first century Judaism. In other words, there'd be nothing shocking there if a Jew came to Christ and he continued in a, a, a or he didn't participate in this debauched lifestyle. That's not surprising. They didn't do that under God's law either. 
You follow the logic? Okay. And now back to the, uh, the, the idea that because Peter uses so much Old Testament language and refers to it, that that somehow indicates that these are Jewish readers. Uh, one writer says this, the citations in 1 Peter and allusions to the Old Testament and the mention of certain characters from the Old Testament does not necessarily point to Jewish readers. We know from other letters, such as 1 Corinthians, that allusions and citations from the Old Testament are included in letters written to Gentiles. We saw that as we moved through the book of Romans. Apparently, when Gentiles were evangelized, they received significant instruction in the Old Testament. Now, this is not to say that the churches in northern Asia Minor, that's where Peter is writing, were exclusively Gentile, for presumably some Jews were members of the churches. On the whole, however, the churches were Gentile. And texts like 118 and 4, 3 through 4, we just looked at, indicate that they were mainly so, okay? So just some facts, and that will come into play as we begin to move through the book. I'll remind you that I believe this is written primarily to Gentiles, and that's what we happen to be. And, uh, and that'll have some significance, and that's why I wanted to cover it on the front side, okay? Now, what was the occasion or reason for the writing of this letter? You know, did Peter just sit down? You'll notice in all, most of the letters, all of them actually, there's a reason. There's something that caused the apostles to sit down and pen or have recorded by their secretary a letter to a particular church, to a particular person, to uh, churches in a region. Okay, they just don't, hey, I think I'm going to write them today. So what was the occasion? And by the way, this is in great part why I chose this letter to preach through next, the answer to that question. I'll explain that in a moment too. But Well, primarily, the reason, the cause for this letter was to uh, encourage, strengthen, and instruct his, Peter's, Christian brothers and sisters located there in Asia Minor who were suffering. Suffering. The topic of suffering is a major theme that runs throughout this letter. So I want to show you that real quick. By the way, I would imagine that uh, prosperity preachers on TBN would stay far away from preaching through this book. In fact, it wouldn't even make sense to them. Because according to them, we're supposed to be living the high life now. We, we shouldn't even know suffering. Just name it and claim it and believe hard enough and you'll be healthy and wealthy and uh, life will be great and you'll be successful. That is just a bunch of nonsense, as we'll see here in First Peter. So let me just show you. I'm going to read through the verses and, again, try to restrain myself from commenting because I want to say that to we actually. But I'm sure some you'll have some questions. Oh, that's interesting. There's some interesting stuff, and we'll come back to it and we'll... we'll do it justice at another time. But right in the beginning, it's hinted at in 1 Peter 1, 6. There, Peter writes this, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. There it's hinted at. The word suffering is not used. But then a few verses later, speaks of, Peter speaks of the suffering of Christ, which, by the way, he'll come back to in the letter and attach it to the suffering of believers. There in 1 Peter 1, 10 through 11, he says this, 
Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that is to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. The glories of Christ tied to the first sufferings of Christ. Then in chapter 2, the next chapter, Peter raises there the issue of unjust suffering. And he says this in verse 19 through 23, for this is a gracious thing when mindful of God one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Get this, verse 21. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, He did not revile in return when he suffered. He did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. I mean, what is our our natural human response when we come under suffering? Is it to not revile in return? Is it not to threaten? Is it to entrust ourselves to God who judges justly? I mean, our natural, in our natural sinful state, no. This is a supernatural reaction, one empowered by the Spirit of God that dwells inside the people of God. Chapter 3, again, every chapter, major theme. Again, suffering, verse 13, verses 13 through 17. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, suffer for doing the right thing, what does the text say? Just, I'm, I'm, again, just I want to show it to you. I don't want, you will be what? Blessed, blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Just a side note, that is a very popular passage, but context is everything. This is, typically this passage is say you got to be ready to make a defense, but it's in, the, it's in the midst of suffering, and one is suffering for their faith, and yet they do not respond like the world responds, but continue to entrust themselves to their creator, and the, the person bringing the persecution says, or the folks watching them experience that say, what is up with you? Why do you live like that? How, why are you so different? Why are you responding the way you respond? And then you give an answer for the hope that you have. You see, context is everything. Yet, do it with gentleness and respect. Unlike the way you're being treated, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, 
than for doing evil. Chapter 4, again, suffering. Verse 12 through 19, beloved, that's brothers and sisters in Christ, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. See, now we are sharing and called to share in Christ's sufferings. Then we will share in Christ's glory. The prosperity preachers are messed up because they're saying, now, and they define that glory in all kinds of strange, but now we share in it. No, then we will share in it. But in this messed up world, no. Suffering will be the course or the lot of God's people often. I lost my place. Here, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. Verse 14, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are what? Was it blessed? That's what it says. Because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. But let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the house of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. And finally, in the last chapter, chapter 5, Again, suffering. Verses 8 through 10. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, (laughs) just a little while, The God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. What a wonderful promise. Now, beloved, this suffering that Peter speaks of is not not suffering. You may have already picked that up. It's not suffering related to sickness or natural disasters or disease. Peter's not addressing that. Although, what we'll learn about suffering can certainly be applied in every single one of those situations, because we suffer, humanity suffers under those situations as well, because we live in a fallen world, okay? But I just want to be clear, it's, it's not addressing that. It's also not addressing, when he's talking about the suffering of his believers there, this is not suffering because of bad choices. And I've spoken to this before, and Thomas continues to speak to it as he takes us through the book of Proverbs, but sometimes Christians get confused and and the suffering that they say they're enduring 
they somehow attribute that to suffering for Christ or something of that nature, but sometimes it's suffering of, of their own making. Uh, so, for instance, one who takes on unnecessary debt again and again and again and then finds themselves as a Christian in a very bad spot and maybe losing their home and their car. Not because bad things happen, but because they chose to take on, listen to my words clear, for the unnecessary debt. See, that's not wise. And as we read through the book of Proverbs, when you do that, there's consequences to living in folly and not living in God's wisdom. And yeah, there's suffering related to that, but that's suffering of your own making, suffering that you could avoid if you would live unto the Lord and listen to His Word, right? You with me? Amen, exactly. And some of that suffering will follow you around. You can't get out of it but because the consequences follow you around. So, for instance, if you drink and you drive, and then you get into an accident and you lose your limbs, that doesn't get undone, okay, until the resurrection. You see what I'm saying? So that, that is suffering for sure, but that is suffering you brought upon yourself because you chose to live in a way that is not wise, that is foolish. You with me? Okay, so the suffering that Peter's talking about, it's not that. This is suffering primarily because of your faith, because, of, because you're living for Jesus Christ, because of your proclamation of Him, because you stand in Him and live according to His Word. It's that kind of suffering. It is persecution for your faith. It is, as Paul, Peter says there, Paul, I'm gonna have to, that's going to be hard. We'll have to get the whole... I cannot tell you how many times I was typing and I typed Paul instead of Peter So, uh, because we've been with Paul so long now. But it is suffering that Peter says experienced by Christians throughout the world. Why? Because of the sinful hostility of the world. That is hostility towards God and his people. Let me remind you of a few verses that you, you know. Most of you, I'm sure, know them. But let me remind you of some things other, uh, that Jesus said and Paul said. John 15, 18 through 19, this is what he says. If the world hates you, yeah, that's the wrong passage. So John 15, 18, so drop that. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. 19, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Are you of the world, beloved? If you're Christ, you are not of the world, okay? You are not of the world. You've been chosen out of the world. You still live in the world, but you're not part of this ungodly, rebelling system any longer. Now, you know, we mess this up because sometimes we, we begin to look like we are of the world, but we are called not to live as the world lives any longer, but to live unto the Lord, which will bring hostility. 2 Timothy chapter 3, 10 through 12, uh, Apostle Paul says this, you, writing to Timothy, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness. And of course, because of all that, 
my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured. Yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Verse 12, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be what? Persecuted. Now, in light of what has been happening into our nation, I thought it would be timely for us as a church to seriously consider Peter's words here in 1 Peter to Christians on suffering. On suffering. So let me explain why I say that. Generally speaking, um, being a Christian in this nation has been relatively comfortable. Huh? If you don't, if you don't agree with that statement, just uh, you need to visit some other countries and profess your Christianity there, and see see what happens. <laughs> But living in this one, it has been relatively comfortable. In fact, I think it's safe to say, you can disagree with me, but I, I think it's safe to say that at one time in our country, at one time, if you weren't a Christian or at least professing to be one, then you might have thought to have been strange or in the minority. But oh, how things have changed. You guys, any of you are, I shouldn't say old enough, any of you wise enough to remember? <laughs> I'm not saying I do. I, blue, um, I am not. Blue laws. Blue laws. Okay. Ron, back there. A few of you shook your head. Those were laws in our, and, and they had different laws in various states about what could take place on Sunday. There are still some blue laws on the books. And they just either are ignored or, in some cases, they're kind of followed. But businesses shut down. Uh, alcohol wasn't allowed to be sold. It also happened on Christmas. That, those were the laws of the nation. Okay? Now, yeah. But even though our nation has grown more and more, and you'll, you know this, spiritually confused and secular, secular over the years, there has been, in my opinion, until recently that is, somewhat of a degree of tolerance among the general unbelieving population towards Christianity and Christians. It's been a general, somewhat degree of tolerance. So by that I mean, and I've heard it expressed like this, hey, to each his own, right? I mean, yeah, you got your, your Christian thing, I don't do that. But that's cool if you want to do that. Just don't push it on me. You do your thing, I'll do my thing. Or you might have heard this, hey, Christianity makes you feel good or helps you out because you need that, you know, you weak people who need a crutch. If, if, if that, that's fine with me, but, <laughs> you know, I don't need it. And I don't believe it and I don't have any interest in it. But that's your thing, man. That's cool. You know what I'm saying? that attitude. You've probably encountered that. But listen carefully to me now. 
with the recent advances and successes of the LGBT lobby. Do you know what I mean when I say LGBT lobby? Let me see if there's some for children. So lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender lobby. They added a Q now, some places to the end of that, so it's LGBTQ for queer, which just is a whole other thing because you're not sure of anything. With their advances and their successes in this nation, a deadly war is beginning to be waged against true Christianity and against those who adhere to it. And I personally believe it's just going to get worse. True Christianity is now being made out to be something that is not okay. There was a level of tolerance that is disappearing rapidly. It's not okay. It should not be accepted, true Christianity. It cannot be tolerated because, they say, it stands on human sexuality, which, by the way, is the Bible's stance on human sexuality, which, by the way, is God's stance on human sexuality. They say that stance is hateful and quite ignorant And oh, by the way, impeding the progress of our nation. Progress. It's it's hindering the evolution of our species. I'm not making this stuff up. I've heard these exact phrases. Or the advancement of humanity. Christianity is standing in the way. Christianity is, they say the LGBT lobby and those who associate with such things, it is unloving, mean-spirited, outdated, and needs to change. Have any of you heard anything like that? If you haven't, you will. And by the way, some so-called Christian churches, so-called Christian churches or organizations have already made the change. They've made the change. They've listened to the lobby. Beyond that, there are so-called Christian churches who embrace this flawed and unbiblical worldview that are popping up all over the place. I googled, I don't want you to do it, but I did it. I googled churches who are LGBT friendly and found a site that had a link titled, Find Open and Affirming Churches, which I guess that makes us closed and rejecting, which is not true. That's not true. And I maybe should say something here. We want to reach out to those struggling with homosexuality. We want to give them the gospel. Yes, we believe it's sin because that's what the Bible says. We want to help them in that just like we would help someone who was an adulterer or a thief or a liar. We don't hate homosexuals. On the list, I had 25 to choose from in California alone. And that's just one list, okay? One of these churches is located in Pomona. By the way, it has Christian in its name. It's in its name. On their website, under here are some things you can expect, right from their website, it says, what do you mean by welcoming all people? This is what we mean. Straight, gay, richer, poor, white, black, etc., etc., That right there I have a problem with because they mix those things together. They should not be. 
all means all, you may see same-sex couples holding hands in the pews. Yeah. Christian church. Uh, By the way, and let me just demonstrate to you just the insanity of all this. This is a so-called church, right? Embraces the LGBT community. Embraces their worldview. They also happen to offer a class called Reiki. I had no idea. What? Reiki classes in a church? Any of you heard of that? Also, do not Google that. But anyway, (laughs) I looked it up. It is supposedly a healing technique based on the principle that the therapist can channel energy into the patient by means of touch to activate the natural healing processes of the patient's body and restore physical and emotional well-being. Beloved, that is New Age nonsense. That is idolatry. But that makes sense for a church that has abandoned God's Word and yet claims to still be hearing to it. They're in darkness. And yet, I'm sure they have followers. Why won't you change will no doubt be the question put forth to the remaining Christian churches in our nation who refuse to compromise with the perversion or this perversion of God's truth. And I can envision them holding up these false churches as an example and saying, see, they're Christian and they love Jesus and they fully embrace and accept the LGBT community. So what is your problem? Summit? Why do you continue? These are the questions. Why do you continue to harbor hate toward us? Those will be the questions. Why do you hold to beliefs and teach things that are so hurtful and harmful to gays, lesbians, and transgenders? And so on and so forth. Beloved, I I think this is the issue. I think this is the issue that will challenge the 21st century evangelical church. It's already challenging it. And probably do a very good job of just sorting out the wheat and the tares. Listen. This is recent news. North Carolina recently passed a law that says in schools and government buildings, people must use the bathroom that corresponds with their biological sex, defined as the one stated on a person's birth certificate. I'm reading right from the law. Okay? You know what that sounds like to me? Common sense. That's, that is what that sounds like to me. But then, in Virginia, a federal appeals court ruled, a federal appeals court ruled in favor of a transgender student, this is in our country, who was born female and wishes to use the boys' restroom at her rural Virginia high school, and so she sued to do that, and she won. And then I read this quote from the U.S. Justice Department concerning that ruling in favor of the transgender student, quote, we are pleased with the Fourth Circuit's decision which agreed with the position that the United States advocated in its brief. The United States. By the way, in another article, the British government, this was just over this last week, they warned their citizens their lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender citizens, of the risk of traveling to two U.S. states 
because of their recent legislation concerning these matters. That was North Carolina and Mississippi. They warned their citizens, be careful. That updated travel warning was published on the eve of President Barack Obama's visit to the UK. He recently visited over there because if you don't know, Britain's thinking about exiting the European Union. But this is what the article says. The White House has previously described the bill, and in this case they're referring specifically to North Carolina's transgender bill, bathroom bill, common sense bill. The White House has previously described the bill as, quote, mean-spirited and is considering whether to withdraw billions in federal aid in response. Beloved, it's, a, it's coming. And if you think, if you think the next president is going to make anything different, you'll, you're wrong. Okay, I'm just going to tell you right now. Whether it be Hillary, or whether it be Trump, <laughs> unbelievable. Whether it be either one of them, they're both the same in this department, guys. They're both the same. Now, the writer of that article, this is why I wanted to show you, the writer of that article that I was reading, this is what he said. Listen, it is now more clear than ever that these terrible measures are not only harming individuals and taking an economic toll on the states, but are also causing serious damage to our nation's reputation. I wanted to puke. Are you serious? And the perceived safety of LGBT people who travel here. Our reputation. So that is our reputation now. That we stand for LGBT. And they're, they're very crafty because they put all this together with discrimination, you know? So if I say anything or we say anything as a church concerning these matters, what the Word of God says, we're discriminating. And that is bad and evil, and so we should stop doing that. And I love, I love it. They're very, again, they're very tricky. They mix it all in with race, which is evil discrimination. This, what they're doing, that's not, that is right discrimination. To say that that is not okay, that that is not right. Because that's what the Word of God says. Beloved. It probably won't be long before churches that haven't compromised and gone with the grain, before churches lose their nonprofit status. And you say, so what does that matter? It matters. It matters because for many churches, they will not be able to then keep up with the bills. I mean, he's gonna, they're talking about removing federal funding from North Carolina because they passed a transgender bill, common sense bill that says whatever's on your birth certificate, that's the bathroom you got to use. And not, they're not saying everywhere. They're just saying in public places, I'm sorry, in government buildings and in schools. Just a note, just a note. Target came out and said, well, we're just going to make a statement. You can use whatever bathroom you feel like using in any of our stores. That's for anybody coming into our store and for any of our employees. Target. In response to North Carolina, several companies backed out. They're no longer going to go and build there and expand there. Concerts were canceled. Oh my. Bruce Springsteen said, I'm not going to sing there. Whoa, what a loss. <laughs> what a loss. 
for those poor North Carolinas. But as our, as our culture continues to feed on the lies of this world, instead of the truth of God's word, things, I believe, in this area are going to get worse and worse, and consequently, the potential for Christian suffering in our nation will become greater and greater. We've been in a bubble. The bubble has been popped. It's been popped. But, beloved, I'm not a fear monger. I'm just, this is the truth. I'm trying to give you it straight. But this is the great part of 1 Peter. In the midst of whatever suffering we may endure for our faith, we, as followers of Jesus Christ, have an incredible hope. An incredible hope. In fact, before Peter even gets into the issue of suffering, he begins first with reminding his Christian readers of their great hope. That's the foundation before he begins to talk about suffering and how we should respond to it. I'll show you. First Peter, this is another great theme. Suffering, hope, hope. First Peter 1, 3 through 9, here's what it says. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded by God's power through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him, now see him, you believe in him. And rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Can't wait to get to that text. Then he says a little bit later in chapter, verse 13, Therefore, preparing your minds for actions, action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you, that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Hey, we've been in this book, right? Revelation. You know the book is the revelation of Jesus Christ? That's the title. That's the name of the book. 1 Peter 3, 14 and 15. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them. We read it earlier. Nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord is holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the what? Hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. Chapter 4, verse 13. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. That's our hope. Because we're sharing in that glory. 1 Peter 5, 1. Here he writes to the elders of the church, churches. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. He just keeps taking them back, keeps taking them back to their hope. In the midst of their suffering, they need to keep being taken back 
to their great hope. So, we have to hold on, beloved. We have to hold on. We have to persevere in our hope. In the midst of our trials, in the midst of our sufferings, sufferings for simply proclaiming Christ and proclaiming His truth and living it out, we have to hold on to our hope. But one more thing, one more major theme of 1 Peter. This is going to be a great book. It won't last three years, I promise. It can't. It's only five chapters. But it is going to be a great book. And I want to encourage you, come every Sunday. And if you have to miss a Sunday, pick it back up online. But besides suffering, hope, Peter also calls us to remain faithful to our coming Lord. That one we're looking for, we're to remain faithful to Him. We must continue to live godly lives. We must continue to do good, even in the midst of suffering, making Christ known, even in the midst of a hostile world, a world that is not our home. We must be courageous. We must be bold, loving, but never compromising, speaking the truth in love to this lost and dying and hostile world. And you see that even in the opening, right? In the opening that I read to you, 1 Peter 1, 1 and 2, it says, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus and Galatia and Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for you were chosen, you were elected for what? Obedience to Jesus Christ. God called you out of this hostile world that you might live for your Savior, even in the midst of it. One writer commenting on that says that when you live in such a way, when Christians do that, when they, even in the midst of their suffering, they obey, they obey even when it might bring upon them pain. He says this, that they indicate that they are placing their hope in God rather than in the joys and comforts of this world. Huh? This world is a passing away. It's a temporary thing. Christians are to look to God, look to that hope, and live for Him regardless of what they might experience because of that and will. 1 Peter 1, 14 through 16, again, you see this throughout the book, as obedient children, obedient. Where's Chris? I need him now. I don't know what that little thing was. What'd you say? Obedience. That's, that's nice. As those kind of children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, all of it, not some of it, all of it, in the home, in the workplace, in your community, among your friends, in your relationships, all of it, since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. Then again in 1 Peter 2, 11 and 12, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. And again, a few verses later, 13 through 16. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, 
that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Servants of God. That's how we're to live. And living as a servant of God will bring hostility. It certainly will. And I think we're going to experience that to a degree that we have not in this nation because of certain things going on. Finally, and we're closing now, some have stated the purpose of this important letter this way. And I think it's timely as well, uh, this letter, but they stated it this way, that the purpose of this letter is to encourage believers to stand fast while they endure suffering and distress in the present evil age. Another writer says this, it is a practical appeal to courage, purity, holiness, and faithfulness to Christ in the midst of suffering for his name's sake. Commenting on the uh, purpose of this letter, another writer says this, another way of describing 1 Peter is to say that those who hope and trust in God and in his future reward will have the strength to endure whatever comes their way in the present. That's the truth, beloved. That's the truth. And then finally, one writer says this, First Peter is preeminently an epistle, a letter of triumphant faith amid suffering. It joyfully proclaims the Christ-centered hope of the believer in the midst of an unbelieving and antagonistic world. Down through the ages, the persecuted church has always treasured it as a priceless possession. And my bet is that we too, in America, will come to treasure it as well. Key verse in the whole book, 1 Peter 4.19. Kind of captures all of those thoughts in one verse. Peter says there, Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Let's pray. Father God, uh, suffering is not a topic that uh, generally we want to discuss or to think about. But Father, it's a reality. It's a reality for your church. It has been. It always has been to one degree or another. And Father, we admit that in our nation, that degree has not been great, or certainly not as great as, for, as it has been for our other brothers and sisters in Christ around this world. But Father, it, it seems, it certainly appears that things are changing. They've been changing for a while, but now it's kind of coming to a head, Father. And... Uh, I think we will, we will be able to relate in a way that we couldn't before to 1 Peter as we face the, the moral decline of our nation and not just that, but the pressure from not just our nation, but now the world pushing in to, to really turn against you, turn against your word, to deny it. Father, there will be those who compromise, there will be those who go astray, there will be those who, who end up rejecting the word of God, who once claimed to be Christians. Father, I pray that you would help us to persevere. 
and not be afraid, but to look to you and to trust in you and to remind ourselves again and again of the great hope that we have in Christ. No matter what happens to us here, it will not happen forever. But what will happen to us forever is glorious. And so you have called us in the face of even suffering to stand firm. Indeed, Father, it is through suffering that you conform us to the image of your Son, Jesus Christ. So help us, Lord, not to go looking for it, but when it comes looking for us, to stand firm in the gospel, in the power of your strength, not ours, and to do good, to live for you, to live as your servants, because that is what we are, regardless of what it may cost us. Empower us to do that, that we might honor and glorify you with our limited time that we have here on this present earth. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.